the headlines tonight. Stalin wipes out the rich pigs. Soviets kill 150 Afghans. And Puto's bulleted backside, Benazir's bad day. Plus, coming up, news from the world of sport as Freddy Starr attempts to eat his own weight in sprats. Those are the headlines. I'm off to the bar. News bang. Firing the shotgun of truth at the fleeing herd of lies. 1929. In a shocking turn of events, Joseph Stalin has announced his plans to liquidate the Kulaks, whoever they may be. The campaign, codenamed Operation Class Enemy Liquidation, will reportedly involve mass arrests, deportations and executions of anyone who so much as looks at him funny. Stalin, known for his love of Lenin, not that there's anything wrong with that, has been consolidating power since the 1930s by implementing his own policies called Stalinism, which are like Marxism, but with more vodka and gulags. The redistribution of farmland began in 1917 and is expected to last until 1933, because even Stalin can't do maths. During this period, known as the First Five-Year Plan, Stalin will allegedly redistribute everything from tractors to potatoes among his loyal followers. The Soviet government has branded the Kulaks as class enemies of the Soviet Union, presumably because they didn't invite them to their New Year's Eve party in 1928. Comrade Ivanovich said, We must root out these Kulak scum, except for Boris Kulakovich, he makes a mean blinny. Oh. 1979. Breaking news from Afghanistan, where the Soviets have invaded and killed Hafizullah Amin, a communist leader who was minding his own business in his pajamas. The Soviets, bored with their own country being too cold and miserable, decided to liven things up by invading the Tajbeg Palace in Kabul, Afghanistan's capital city. The war lasted 10 years and involved the Americans supplying the Mujahideen with weapons and mixed nuts. Thousands died in what historians now call a bit of a cock-up. The war eventually ended when both sides realized they were fighting over a pile of rocks and goats and went home for a nice cup of tea. The only winners were the makers of Kalashnikovs and landmine manufacturers. And so, another chapter in world history ends with everyone involved asking themselves, what on earth were we thinking? It is a situm. 2007. Former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto was gunned down today in Rawalpindi, Pakistan, while leaving a political rally. Bhutto, the first woman to head a democratic government in a Muslim-majority country, was shot by an unidentified assailant as she waved to supporters at Liakat National Bag. Eyewitnesses described the attacker as a tall man with a beard and a gun who escaped on a waiting camel. The assassination has shocked the world and postponed general elections indefinitely. Bhutto's party, the Pakistan People's Party, vowed to continue her legacy of centre-left politics and parkside rallies. Rawalpindi, known for its vibrant population of goats and proximity to Islamabad's bustling bazaars, is reeling from the loss of its most famous resident since Jamil the Camel. Hussein was deported for eating too many tourists. News bang. A tonic of truth served with a twist of sarcasm. Presenting the meteorological maestro, Shakanaka Giles, with a forecast that promises to be as refreshing as a polar bear's post-snow frolic dunk in the Arctic Ocean.
Tomorrow's weather, in the southeast, it'll be a bright and frosty start, like waking up to a freshly brewed cup of tea. Over to the Midlands, expect a chilly day with a bit of a nip in the air, about as cold as your ex's heart. In the northwest, a crisp and clear day awaits, perfect for frolicking in the snow like a polar bear on a sugar rush. And finally, in the southwest, it'll be a mild day with a chance of showers, so don't forget your brolly, dear listeners. In summary, a brood morning, a chilly ex, frolicking bears, and a chance of showers. Stay warm, everyone. And that's all the weather. The year 2008 saw Israel launch a sudden assault on the Gaza Strip, a response to rocket fire from Palestinian armed groups. The ensuing conflict known as the Gaza War, or Operation Cast Lead, lasted three weeks and left a sobering toll. 1166-1417 Palestinian lives lost, along with 13 Israeli lives. For a closer look at the complexities and repercussions of this conflict, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. The air is thick with the stench of death. The ground beneath me is soaked in blood. The cries of the dying and the wailing of the bereaved fill the air. This is the Gaza Strip, a place where peace is a distant memory and war is a way of life. As I stand here, surrounded by the carnage of battle, I am reminded of the words of the great poet William Shakespeare, who once wrote, Cry havoc, sat and let slip the dogs of war, setian sabasoward. And havoc has indeed been wrought here. The streets are littered with the bodies of the dead and the dying. The buildings are reduced to rubble. The stench of death is everywhere. But amidst the chaos and the carnage, there is a sense of defiance. The people of Gaza are not cowed. They are not afraid. They are determined to fight on, to resist the Israeli aggression, to defend their land and their people. And so the battle rages on. The sound of gunfire and explosions fills the air. The sky is filled with the smoke and the dust of battle. But amidst the chaos and the carnage, there is a sense of hope. A sense that one day peace will return to this troubled land. For now, though, the war continues. The dogs of war have been unleashed and they will not be stopped until their thirst for blood has been sated. This is Brian Bastable reporting from the Gaza Strip for Newsbang. It is a situm. 2007. In a tragic turn of events, the year 2007 witnessed the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, the former Pakistani Prime Minister, who was the first woman to lead a democratic government in a Muslim-majority nation. The assassination occurred in Rawalpindi, at Liaquat National Bagh, following a political rally. The Pakistan People's Party, Bhutto's political party, is a centre-left party in Pakistan. The aftermath of this heinous act led to the postponement of general elections. To delve deeper into the implications of this event, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Ladies and gentlemen, gather round as we journey back to a time when the world was a darker place. 
a time when hope was crushed beneath the heel of tyranny and the very air hung heavy with the stench of corruption and deceit. I speak, of course, of the year 2007, a year that would forever change the course of history in a Muslim-majority country known as Pakistan. Former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, a trailblazing woman who dared to defy convention and shatter glass ceilings, was brutally assassinated while leaving a political rally in Rawalpindi's infamous Liaquat National Bagh. This courageous leader was not only the first woman to head a democratic government in her country, but also an inspiration to women around the world who dared to dream of breaking free from the chains of oppression. The assassination sent shockwaves through Pakistan and beyond, plunging the nation into chaos and despair. The general elections that were scheduled to take place just days later were postponed indefinitely, leaving the people of Pakistan without a voice or a future. Rawalpindi, once a city teeming with life and hope, became a symbol of tragedy and loss. The very ground on which Bhutto walked was stained with her blood, a chilling reminder of the price paid by those who dare to stand up against tyranny. As we remember Benazir Bhutto today, let us not forget the sacrifices she made for her people and for women everywhere. Let us honor her memory by continuing to fight for justice, equality and freedom, no matter how dark things may seem. For as long as there are those who seek to oppress and subjugate others, there will always be those who stand up against them, just as Benazir Bhutto did until her dying breath. 1929 the year is 1929 and Joseph Stalin has commenced a ruthless campaign against prosperous peasants, ominously coined the liquidation of the kulaks as a class. This brutal chapter in Soviet history, marking the beginning of Stalinism, entailed mass arrests, deportations and executions of millions of kulaks and their families. The Soviet government, in its infinite wisdom, chose to brand these affluent peasants as class enemies of the Soviet Union. As we delve deeper into this quagmire of political repression, we turn to our correspondent, Hardiman Pesto, for further insights. Good evening, Martin. I'm here with our special guest, Professor Ivan Ivanovich, an expert on Soviet history. We're discussing Stalin's policies in the late 1920s and early 1930s, specifically the liquidation of the kulaks as a class. Professor, could you briefly explain what this policy entailed? Certainly, Hardiman. This policy was a brutal campaign of arrests, deportations, and executions targeting prosperous peasants, the so-called kulaks. They were labeled class enemies of the Soviet Union and were forcibly removed from their lands. Pesto, I hope you're not going to regurgitate the Soviet government's propaganda about the kulaks being class enemies. Not at all, Martin. I'm just trying to understand the historical context. Indeed, it's important to remember that the kulaks were often simply successful farmers who had managed to accumulate some wealth. They were not, by and large, exploitative landlords. Pesto, you're not going to make a fool of yourself again, are you? No, Martin, I'm being careful this time. See that you are. Carry on, Pesto. Thank you, Martin. Professor, how did this policy fit into Stalin's overall vision for the Soviet Union? Stalin's policies, often referred to as Stalinism, were based on a Leninist interpretation of Marxism. He believed in the rapid industrialization of the Soviet Union, which required the collectivization of agriculture. The kulaks were seen as a barrier to this process, as they were reluctant to give up their land and join collective farms. 
Pesto, are you going to ask a question or just stare at the professor like a deer in headlights? Yes, of course, Martin. Professor, what was the impact of this policy on the Soviet countryside and the broader society? The policy led to widespread resistance, including armed uprisings. The Soviet government responded with even greater brutality, leading to the deaths of millions of people. The collectivization of agriculture also led to a decline in agricultural productivity, which exacerbated food shortages in the early 1930s. Pesto, I think that's enough for tonight. We need to move on to the next segment. Yes, Martin. Thank you, Professor Ivanovich, for your insights. And Pesto, try to get your facts straight next time. I'll do my best, Martin. Thank you. In a development that has set the world abuzz, CloneEd, the organization affiliated with the UFO religion realism, has declared the successful cloning of a human baby. While evidence remains elusive, the claim has ignited a firestorm of criticism and ethical debate. The question on everyone's lips, are we on the cusp of a brave new world or teetering on the precipice of a slippery slope? Melody Wintergreen, our reporter in Florida, has been following the story closely. Melody, what can you tell us about the efforts to protect this cloned baby and the legitimacy of CloneAid? In the shadow of science, where the line between fiction and reality blurs, CloneAid stands at the precipice of a new dawn or a dark descent. The year is 2002 and whispers of the world's first human clone echo through the corridors of controversy. Here in the heart of uncertainty, CloneEd, a company as enigmatic as the UFO religion it orbits, claims to have replicated humanity's most precious commodity, life itself. But this alleged doppelganger debutante arrives on stage without proof, an invisible starlet in humanity's existential theater. As ethical tempests rage, Florida attorney Braxton Pierce brandishes his legal lance, vowing to shield this phantom infant from the prying public and probing press. His crusade casts a long shadow over Cloned's credibility carnival. Meanwhile, bioethicist Clara Alto ascends her pulpit of prudence, denouncing Cloned's cavalier curtain call as nothing short of scientific sacrilege. Her voice rings out as a clarion call against premature human experimentation, a siren song lamenting the missteps made with our animal ancestors. The cloning conundrum unfurls like a double helix drama. It's not just about copying cells, but copying souls. As we stand at this genetic junction, we must ask ourselves, are we opening Pandora's Petri dish? In this tale of test tubes and taboos, Clonade may have promised us immortality, but at what cost comes this carousel of clones? So here we are, on the cusp of creation or calamity, pondering whether we've birthed a brave new world or merely mirrored our own mortality. This is Melody Wintergreen amidst the molecular maelstrom at Clonade headquarters. News bang, the only news source that doesn't suck. Penelope Winchime, our resident environmental correspondent, takes us on a journey through the annals of environmental history. Today, she reflects on the legacies of Diane Fossey and Charles Darwin and their profound impact on primate conservation and evolutionary thought. Envirotales with me, Penelope Winchime. 
On this day in the year of our Earth Mother, 1985, the whispering winds carried a sorrowful tune through the emerald embrace of Rwanda's Volcanoes National Park. Diane Fossey, guardian of the mountain gorillas, keeper of the misty secrets, was found tragically plucked from our world's tapestry. Her legacy, like the roots of an ancient tree, delves deep into the heart soil of primate conservation. She danced with gorillas and spoke for those who had no voice amidst the golden monkey's silent applause. Rewinding time to 1831, HMS Beagle set sail with Charles Darwin aboard, embarking on a voyage that would hatch the egg of evolutionary thought. Darwin, a naturalist not by nature but by nurture, scribbled furiously as finches whispered evolution into his ear. The Beagle, a vessel not just of wood and sail but of ideas and revelations, bobbed on the ocean's back like a thinking cap upon the head of humanity. So let us remember these titans of environmental law as we stand upon shoulders that peek over history's leafy hedge. For without them, we might still be lost in nature's labyrinth without a compass or a clue. I'm Penelope Winchime. May your hearts be evergreen and your minds forever fertile. 1922. Calamity Prenderville, our science correspondent, with a report on the first purpose-built aircraft carrier, Hosho, commissioned by the Imperial Japanese Navy in 1922. A marvel of British innovation and mobility. On this day in history, the year 1922, the Imperial Japanese Navy unveiled a technological marvel that would change the face of warfare forever. Hosho, the world's first purpose-built aircraft carrier, was commissioned. And it was a doozy. Imagine a floating runway, complete with a fleet of miniature planes, ready to take off at a moment's notice. It was like a mobile airport, but on water. Now, you might think, what's so British about that? Well, let me tell you, it was British innovation that made it possible. Those tiny planes, they were powered by steam, just like our beloved locomotives. And the runway? It was made from the same stuff as our iconic red phone boxes. But why an aircraft carrier, you ask? Well, it's all about mobility and autonomy. Just like our punk rockers, these carriers didn't need anyone else to tell them what to do. They could go anywhere, do anything, and drop a few bombs while they were at it. So, here's to Hosho, the world's first purpose-built aircraft carrier, a testament to British innovation and a symbol of mobile air power. It's enough to make you want to stand up and salute, or maybe just grab a cup of tea and a biscuit. After all, it's the British way. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, a fork in the road of truth, a knife in the back of lies. 1932. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you a flashback to 1932, when the world's largest auditorium, Radio City Music Hall, opened its doors in the heart of New York City. Known as the showplace of the nation, this art deco masterpiece became the stage for the world-renowned Rockettes. Smithsonian Moss takes us on a journey back in time to explore the grandeur of this architectural marvel nestled within the Rockefeller Center. 
Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my dear Newsbang Nation. It's your girl, Smithsonia Moss, here to bring you the latest and greatest in culture. And let me tell you, we've got a real doozy for you tonight. We're going back in time, back to the roaring 20s, when flappers were flapping and jazz was the bee's knees. That's right, folks. We're talking about the grand opening of Radio City Music Hall, the showplace of the nation, and the birthplace of the legendary Rockettes. Now, I wasn't alive in 1932, but I've seen enough movies to know that this was a big freaking deal. Imagine, if you will, a time before Netflix, before Hulu, before the Kardashians even thought about gracing our television screens. People had to actually leave their homes and go to a building to be entertained. Can you even imagine such a thing? Radio City Music Hall was the place to be, the epitome of style and sophistication. It was like the Met Gala of its time, but instead of celebrities, it was filled with regular folks who just wanted to escape the daily grind and be transported to a world of glamour and glitz. And let's not forget about the Rockettes, those high-kicking, leg-lengthening, dance-machine divas. They were the original influencers, the ones who set the trends and made the world sit up and take notice. They were the original Kardashians, but with actual talent and without the need for a sex tape. But Radio City Music Hall wasn't just about the Rockettes. Oh no, it was a veritable smorgasbord of entertainment, with everything from live music to films to stage shows. It was like the ultimate variety show, a place where you could see and hear it all. And the building itself, oh my goodness, it was a work of art. Designed in the Art Deco style, it was a symbol of the modern age, a testament to the power of human ingenuity and creativity. It was like a giant, glittering jewel in the heart of New York City, a beacon of hope and happiness in a world that was still reeling from the Great Depression. So, let's raise a glass to Radio City Music Hall, the showplace of the nation, and a true icon of American culture. Here's to the Rockettes, to the music, to the memories, and to the magic that continues to this day. Waho! Newsbang. Unraveling the ball of yarn of misinformation. 1657. A remarkable document from the Annals of Religious Freedom, the Flushing Remonstrance. A petition presented in 1657 stands as a testament to the indomitable spirit of Quakers in New Netherland. The Director General, Peter Stuyvesant, had imposed a ban on Quaker worship, but the Flushing Remonstrance, a precursor to the United States Constitution's religious freedom provision, challenged this prohibition. And to delve further into the fascinating world of Quakerism, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. The producer just slipped me a note saying I'm to riff on some historical goings-on from the 17th century. Well, history was never my strong suit. I barely passed it in school thanks to old Professor Snodgrass and his interminable droning about crop rotations. Could put a hyena to sleep, that one. <laughs> now, the year is 1657, and we find ourselves in New Netherland, as the Dutch called their American colonies back then, 
Real creative bunch, those Dutch. The main man in charge was this fellow Peter Stuyvesant, who apparently had a peg leg and a wicked temper, so steer clear of him at happy hour. Anyway, old peg leg Pete decided Quakers shouldn't be allowed to worship freely in his domain. A bit rude if you ask me. Thankfully, some rabble-rousers in the town of Flushing took exception to this ban and drafted up the Flushing Remonstrance, basically telling Pete he could stick his ban where the sun don't shine. The gist was, let people worship how they want, you cranky old goat. <laughs> I imagine Pete didn't take too kindly to that. Probably stomped around his office waving his peg leg and cursing in Dutch for a week. But the remonstrance chap stood firm and, lo and behold, their petition ended up being an early blueprint for freedom of religion in America. So cheers to those 17th century defenders of faith from Flushing. May we all be so flush with integrity. <laughs> Which reminds me of a joke about religious freedom. There was a priest, a minister and a rabbi who decided to go for a picnic in the countryside together. As they were driving along, they saw a sign for a farm that did goat rides. Thinking it would be fun, they pulled over. The farmer brought out a goat for each of them to ride. The priest mounted his goat and said, Giddy up, St. Peter. The minister mounted his goat and said, Giddy up, St. Luke. Then the rabbi mounted his goat and said, Giddy up, Moses. So off they went, riding through the countryside. But soon they came to a river crossing. Unfortunately, the goat stopped there and refused to cross the river. The priest said, Come on, St. Peter, let's cross. But his goat wouldn't budge. The minister said, Let's go, St. Luke. Still, no movement. <laughs> Finally, the rabbi said, Come on, Moses, let's cross this river already. And miraculously, his goat started walking across the water. The priest and minister were astonished and asked how he got his goat to do that. The rabbi just smiled and said, Well, my friend, these goats are all named Moses. But only my Moses believes in religious freedom. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that silly tale and my amateur musings on history. Wishing you a lovely evening ahead. <laughs> And now, a final glance at tomorrow's front pages. The Times, Union forces triumph in American Civil War. A victory for the good guys, it seems? The Telegraph, Canadians capture Ortona in World War II. A bit of good news amidst all the gloom. The Guardian, Kurdish conflict 34 dead in Turkish blunder. Shocking but not surprising. The Mail, F-16s massacre innocent villagers. Oops, they did it again. And finally, the Sun, four-legged cowboy arrested in Yorkshire. And that's it for tonight's newsbang. Remember folks, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>